This is episode 504 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. As we've talked about before, we are living in troubling times. And troubling times call for men of courage, men of fortitude, and men that won't hide behind fear and excuses. But where are those men today, especially in the church? You know, there comes a point in every Christian's life when they simply must choose. We must choose to either stand for Christ and all that that means or cower under the world's pressure to force us into its mold. We must be willing to suffer misunderstanding, cancellation, loss of jobs and family relationships, even overt suffering and persecution in our commitment and faithfulness to him. After all, all our spiritual heroes have done the same when they had to choose. Why should we think we're exempt? And we know that all we lack, he supplies. All we don't have or can't do, he can. No matter how broken or ordinary we may be, he is strong, mighty, invincible, and he lives in us. So there is no excuse. Well, join us today as we remember how to rekindle the gift of God, which is in each of us, as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I need to, to share this with you in the beginning. I will share this with you. that What's going on right now um, in the Christian church, we've got all these crazy things going on in our culture. We've got uh, an unbelievable overreaches from our government. Just as last week, we had this uh, the president coming out and basically going to war with the Border Patrol over something. If you've looked at it, it's not at all what they said it was. There was no whipping going on down there. We have uh, a move now that your bank will no longer work for you, that your bank will now work for the IRS and will have to report end of the year or possibly earlier to the IRS every financial transaction that you make over $600 for the alleged reason that uh, they want to track down billions of dollars that billionaires are hiding. Um, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And over and over again, every time we turn around, there's an erosion of our freedom. There's an erosion of our freedom regarding the coronavirus, erosion of our freedom everywhere we turn around. And again, pastors are taking two different positions on this. One of them, one side, is putting on the spiritual mantle and basically saying, we're not going to deal with stuff like that. That's all a political issue. It's not. It's a moral issue. It's a political issue. It's, oh, by the way, and the House of Representatives voted this week to authorize abortions all through nine months of pregnancy, even up to the point of delivery. And all Democrats voted for it, save one. No Republicans voted for it. Um, it is, um, it's an insane time in which we live. The church takes two positions. One position, well, all we're going to do is what we've always done. We just want to preach the gospel and win the lost, which we're not doing a very good job of anyway. Preach the gospel and, you know, uh, win the lost. And we're just, if they'll leave us alone, we'll leave them alone. We'll just stay in our churches and do our things and, you know, we'll be happy and you be happy and, and everything is fine. The other side says, and, and that's the side that also says there's absolutely no biblical foundation at all, period, for you to take a religious exemption for um, uh, the coronavirus. Um, okay, that's, you know, it's your freedom of choice, but nevertheless, the, half the church takes that position. Matter of fact, most of the church takes that position. 
Another segment of the church, which I happen to fall on, takes the position that we are fighting for the ability to proclaim the gospel that after we're gone, our kids won't have anymore. If you will look at the freedoms that are, are being assaulted right now, it's almost every one of the, uh, the amendments, the uh, personal amendments that we have, personal rights that we have, the Bill of Rights, except for the Second Amendment, that seems to be just hanging by a thread right now, our ability to gather in large groups, our ability to even have church, our ability to have jobs. If you don't take the vaccine and you work for a company over 100 people, therefore you can lose your job. There's no court that ruled on this. There's no trial that ruled on this. We don't know if it's even constitutional. It's an administrative fiat statement that comes from bureaucrats. And we're all suffering from this. And what it's going to mean is going to be much harder for my children to live a Christian life than it is for me to live a Christian life. And so the battle that we're faced with is for the heart and soul of our children. And we have a tendency of, the church has a tendency of saying, no, 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 that's just political. Since Biden's a Democrat and you're a Republican, then it's political, therefore we're not going to be involved in that anymore. The abortion issue is political. The homosexual issue is political. No, they're moral, biblical, spiritual issues that the church has to take a stand on. We have to, but we don't want to. As I share this with you, I want you to know that that is the backdrop, the backdrop. And most of us feel ill-equipped. Most of us don't want to do anything. Most of us are a lot like Timothy. So we're going to try to move beyond the text and try to look at the personality of Timothy, maybe some of the things he struggled with, maybe some of the things he did well by the text we're looking at. This isn't necessarily a Bible study on, Tim, uh, on the book of Timothy. It's really a Bible study on Timothy the man and his relationship with the apostle Paul and the job he was given to do that he was ill-equipped to do and intimidated by, yet nevertheless, he had a calling from God. So let me pray. Father, we need you more than anything to intervene right now in our gathering, to take control over the message, the text, everything we're going to do to speak truth to every single one of us. Lord, would you open up the word to us? Would you explain it to us in ways that we've never seen it before? And we want to yield everything to you. Holy Spirit, would you do what you promised to do, what Jesus said you would do, and take the words of Christ and make them real to us and impart truth to us. And I'm going to thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're not going to take the time to trace all the missionary journeys of Paul and where he met Timothy and Lystra and how Timothy kind of hooked up with him and traveled with him for like 15 years. And then all of a sudden during Paul's first missionary journey, he, uh, he wrote 1 Timothy and then uh, at the end of it, I'm, I'm sorry, his first imprisonment and his second imprisonment close to the end of his life, he wrote 2 Timothy, which is like the last letter he wrote. But I do want you to know that what we have here in 1 and 2 Timothy are letters. They're inspired letters that Paul wrote to his young son in the faith. First Timothy, he was about 30 years old. And what he basically was telling Timothy was this, extraordinary times call for extraordinary people. And here's what you and I and Timothy would say. I'm not an extraordinary person. I'm not, I'm, I'm just a man. 
I'm just a man or a woman or a teenager or a kid, and, and I have my limitations and my insecurities, and, and you know, I, I, I've, I've tried to be bold, and I got beat down a lot. There's other people you can use. It's just, just not me for this. And then Paul would say, okay, how about this? How about ordinary people like you, Timothy, doing extraordinary things? Well, how is that done? How does an ordinary person do an extraordinary thing? You don't. An ordinary person empowered by an off-the-chart God, this Holy Spirit living in you, experiencing the higher, over-the-top, bold, higher Christian life allows the Holy Spirit to take ordinary people like us, everyday people like us, with our failures and our few successes and turn us around and do something mighty in our midst. That's, what, that's where heroes come from. Not from the person we always thought was going to achieve great things, the, you know, the person who's voted in high school most likely to succeed, but the average ordinary person that God gets hold of in an extraordinary time and does some amazing things. So we all agree with point one and point two. But what about the first question? What holds us back? Why aren't we those kind of people? Why aren't we over the top? I mean, what does God need for you and I as members of his church to be right now? What is the greatest need in this culture for our children and our grandchildren, for our wives and our grandparents? What does he need the most? And listen very carefully. If Jesus doesn't return and another 20 years passes, and your and mine influence wanes, and our children grow up and become adults and take our places, and they look back on us as parents and men and women and adults facing this crisis, what are they going to say about us? Did my dad, did my mom, did my pastor, did, did they rally to the cause? Did they raise themselves up? Did they stir up this gift of God in them? Or did they drop the ball, go home, and watch reruns of Everybody Loves Raymond because they just didn't want to deal with it anymore? What are they going to say about us? Do they want to be like us? Or are they going to say, you know what, when a crisis comes my way, I ain't going to be like my dad. My dad just rolled over and played dead. My dad was too busy about building his own empire. My dad didn't want other people to say bad things about him on Facebook. My dad was not the man I thought. He was. We're at that crux right now that what we're doing and the position that we take regarding spiritual truths and our devotion to him really all center on how our children are going to think about us when we're gone. It's exactly what happened in First and Second Timothy. Let me give you a quick summary of First um, of Timothy. Timothy is this young man. He's followed Paul for about 15 years. Paul has now been flogged. Paul has been in prison. He's now in a Roman imprisonment. He has got some problems going on in this church in Ephesus where uh, uh, he had gone in and Paul had seen these things that were going on. Paul had actually excommunicated two elders. I won't get into all the five proofs that show that Hymenaeus and Alexander were elders, but the fact is that they were. And Paul, like in every one of his letters, even to Timothy, he begins the letter by talking about the doctrine, this is the truth, and then he ends his letter by saying, this is what you must do based on what I've just shared with you. 
Now, I want you to think now like Timothy. Think now like you. Here's what he says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son, literally it means child, in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the first thing he said, stop. You're getting ready to run. You're getting ready to leave. You're getting ready to move on to a greener pasture, to get away from the hassle and the turmoil and the negativity and the things that bring you down. You're getting ready to move from an area where God has called you to stand firm and fight for truth because it's much easier for you to move on. Verse three, he begins the letter. As I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Well, why would he say that? Because Timothy wanted to leave. I don't want to be there anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm so tired of this. Everybody's saying bad things about me. That My enemies are great and I, I'm a nobody. I'm just an ordinary guy. I mean, what do you expect from me? And, and if I do stay, what do you want me to do? As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Why? That you may charge, literally command, some, not everybody, but some, that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. I want you to go in there and finish what I have done. Paul obviously had gone to this church, he had excommunicated two elders. If you look at verse 20, the last verse of this chapter, it says, of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's a phrase meaning that they were excommunicated, that they were removed from the church because of their behavior and their teaching. They were no longer under the covenant of God, getting the residual protection and blessings from the church. So these guys are angry. These guys are mad. These guys have a following. These guys' heresy has probably spread beyond the church in Ephesus. And I'm telling you, Timothy, little young Timothy, been with me for 15 years, seen what, see what I've done. It's no longer, you can no longer hang under my wing anymore. I need you out on the front lines yourself. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge, command, mandate that some of these two are primary, that they no longer teach any other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from a sincere faith from which some, certain ones, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say or the things which they infirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for these people, uh, is not made for the righteous, but for the lawless, for the insubordinate, which means defiant, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, 
kidnappers, for liars and perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. I don't want this church. I would really rather not do this. Why don't we, this is what we do today, why don't we just dump that church and go start another one with our entrepreneurial kind of spirit? It's not the way Paul functioned back then. There wasn't churches on every street corner with every Heinz 57 variety of, of doctrine out there. I need you to go in there and handle that. And we find out in 2 Timothy that he was a man that was timid. He was a man that was afraid. He was a man that's somewhat ashamed of what happened to Paul and maybe ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a man that in the flesh and in the personality and his own gifts was ill-equipped for this job. Nevertheless, you do it anyway. Verses 12 through 17, he talks about, Paul talks about himself and the grace that was given to him. And in verse 18 through 20, he then hits Timothy again with what you need to do. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. The word commit here means to put in the care of, and the word charge means like a military command. You son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected or walked away from or repelled concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck, of whom, and I'm going to just list two for you, Paul says, Hymenaeus and Alexander, of whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, it is believed that these two men were elders. They were leaders of the church. They had their own faction. Paul had gone in there with his personality, perfectly suited for this, and cleaned house. That's why in the latter part of this book, he, Timothy goes, now here are the qualifications for an elder and a deacon. Not these guys, but here's the qualifications. Someone who's a uh, husband of one wife, who is blameless, who is who's perfect with his reputation and, and stuff of that nature. And I'm looking at this and I'm, would you want this job? This calls for an extraordinary man like Paul. I can imagine Timothy looking at Paul and going, I'm not you. I don't have your personality. I can't do this. As a matter of fact, I happen to take the Bill Gothard um, uh, little schemata they have on your primary spiritual motivational gift. And I found out that this isn't my gift at all. My gift is more like being an encourager or something of that nature. And so therefore, since on this little quiz that I took, my primary motivational spiritual gift is not yours. Therefore, I'm ill-equipped for this job. I'm going to pass. I'm not going to do it. Or I remember the pearls came out with um, something where uh, I think it was prepare for his help meet or something of that nature, where they came out with, what kind of husband do you have? Do you have a, you know, a, a Mr. Command man or a leader man or a lion? Or do you have a, a like a Mr. Steady guy? And, and so we read all this stuff. We try to find ourselves in those and we figure that's all we are. Well, I'm a Mr. Command man or I'm a Mr. Steady man. I'm not a guy that's an entrepreneur. I'm not a guy that really wants to start his own business. I'm the kind of guy that's satisfied with just working a job and being a helpmate. I'm the guy behind the scenes and nothing wrong with that. But since we determine that's who we are, that's who we're always going to be. God, you can't use me any other way. That's my excuse 
for not rising to the occasion and being just an ordinary man who God can do extraordinary things to. Women are the same way. We figure out what kind of woman we are, what kind of spiritual gift we have. Oh, I'm not a teacher. Oh, I, I can't teach at all. I'm the kind of woman that feels more comfortable, you know, sitting with someone in a hospital bed. Well, that's great. But does that mean you don't teach? Does that mean that you never do anything else? That we only do the things that we feel comfortable doing, even when our society and God and the church needs certain types of people that, that he wants to make us into that seem devoid today? Do you see our problem? So Timothy goes back. Some time passes. Paul is released from his first Roman imprisonment. He's now in prison the second time in Rome. Timothy is pastoring the church there in Ephesus. He's still having arguments with this Hymenaeus guy, only he's kind of hooked up with somebody else right now. And so Paul writes his second letter to Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, his second letter. And here's what he says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, child, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins with a personal note. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did and without ceasing I remember you in my prayers day and night. Greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you which, first, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. I believe is in you also. I believe there's more in you than you think is in you. And so therefore, since you're not acting on what truly belongs to you, verse six, I wanna remind you to stir up to rekindle the gift of God which is in you and through the laying on of my hands that he referred to in the last book. I remind you that you're more than what you think you are, that you're more than what you feel comfortable doing, that God has given you himself to live inside of you. He's given you gifts and stir up rekindle, be the man I know I'm fully persuaded you can be. Don't be like your personality dictates, but be like the spirit commands. Well, what does my personality dictate? Verse seven, for God has not given us. Well, he has given us something. But what you're claiming he gave you, he didn't give you. That came from you. He did not give us a spirit of fear. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my friends. Somebody's going to say something on Facebook really bad. I want to post something about Jesus, but if I do, they're going to laugh at me, so, so therefore I don't. Or I want to share my faith at work, but if I do, I may lose my job and God's not big enough to give me another job. And my family will turn against me and I can't see my kids. And so I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna pretend like nothing's going on right now. And I'm just gonna pretend like that everything's fine, bury my head in the sand, do the same things I've always done that led me to this point and think that's okay. God did not give you, Timothy, 
Stir up this gift that you're not functioning in, a spirit of fear, which is what you are functioning in right now, Timothy. But what he did give you is power. This is dunamis. It's explosive, miracle-working power that comes through the Holy Spirit living in you. And he gave you love, and he gave you a sound mind or self-discipline. That's what he gave you, to stay focused to the job, to do what God has called you to do in his strength. Because, Timothy, because you do have fear, you're ashamed. You're not only ashamed of Christ, but you're also ashamed of me, your spiritual father, because I'm in prison and I'm suffering because of the gospel's sake. And you think you want the world to accept you and you realize that they won't. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, which Paul emulates. But you're ashamed of that, Timothy, because your focus is more in this world than in the kingdom of heaven. Verse eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Well, how, Timothy, are you ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? You're not standing for it. You're not proclaiming it. You're not confronting evil with it. You're not standing and protecting others. You're not making a decision like the men at the Alamo and committing your life to it. You're just, oh, well, Maybe if I leave them alone, they'll leave me alone and I can still go to Carowinds and to the beach and have fun. And, and maybe, maybe it's not as bad as it seems. Maybe it's okay. And it's not. The enemy is relentless. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, me and you, Timothy, and everyone else in this room. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles, just like you. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Can you do the same thing, Timothy? Because you're not. Because you're falling back. Oh, well, that's just not who I am. I don't have that kind of personality. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Mr. Steady man. I'm a visionary. I'm just a, a friend. I'm not a, a bold person. I'm not one that's going to stand up and proclaim God's truth to my family. I'm not going to stand up against bullies or against people that are trying to to destroy the life of my children and my grandchildren. I'm not going to basically take the shots for me that are de destined for them. Instead, I'm just going to be like my dad and maybe your dad and maybe the generation that I grew up with, my generation, to put abortion on demand on our watch. Church did nothing in 1973, and it's still is murdering kids today, and we still do nothing. 
you can read the rest of this chapter in chapter 2 and 3 where he talks about how you need to be strong, the perilous times are coming, and, and that you need to, to model those people who are our spiritual heroes. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says this, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, and what happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And don't you remember, Timothy, that out of all of them, the Lord delivered me. So don't be afraid of what's going to happen to you. Because yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceiving. But you must, verse 14, chapter 3, continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. And from childhood, you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that you, Timothy, the man of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Last chapter Paul ever wrote to anyone. He's writing to his friend Timothy, giving this final warning to a man who struggled with timidity. That's just not my gift. I don't feel comfortable doing that. I mean, God made me like this. Surely I'm stuck where he made me. And I'm, that's my primary motivational spiritual gift. It's kind of what I fit in most. I'm 60% this and only 30 or 40% something else. And so therefore, that's my excuse. We'll let other people lead. We'll let other people be head of their own families. We'll let other people, other men, assume authority rather than me. And just it's just not for me because... I'm not equipped. No, you're not. No, you're not. But God is. God is. Look what he says here. Chapter 4. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at the appearance, at the appearing and his kingdom. Here's your job. Preach the word. Stand for truth. Proclaim the truth. Be ready, instant, prepared, in season and out of season. In other words, spend your time studying God's word. Fill your arsenal so that God can use you as his weapon against darkness. Be serious about the things of God. What we've been talking about for six months or longer, embrace the higher Christian life, which demands a sacrifice on your part to let go of this life and embrace that life. And here's what I want you to do with the Holy Spirit empowering you. Convince, rebuke, well, that's number two, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Don't quit because the time will come when they, the people you're proclaiming, the false teachers, will no longer endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. 
Well, Lord, you, 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 Paul, you don't, you don't know how bad it is out there. I mean, there's all these different doctors in the church. And I got this Hymenaeus guy and a couple of his buddies. And there's other people over there. They trash me all the time. They say terrible things about me and terrible things about you, Paul. And they say that if you really were blessed by Jesus, you wouldn't be in prison right now because God only wants good things to happen to his people. And, and, if, and if I act like you, Paul, I'm going to go to jail. And if I go to jail, what's going to happen to the church and my family? And by the way, just in case you're interested, uh, Timothy died at the age of 87 in Ephesus, where he was preaching against a procession of people in that city coming to proclaim their allegiance to the idol Diana at that time, their goddess Diana. And the people were so incensed at this almost 90-year-old man preaching that they rushed him, they beat him, they dragged him outside the city and stoned him. Did he have a lasting huge impact in that city? Did that city have a massive revival like Nineveh and they all turned to God? No. But nevertheless, he was faithful. He did what God called him to do no matter what. At 87 years old, he should have retired. There's no retirement for this, the child of God. No retirement from his kingdom. So what am I supposed to do, Paul? And I will close with verse five. But you, you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Watch this phrase. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Why did he tell him to do the work of an evangelist? Because he obviously wasn't gifted at that. Well, that's not my calling, Paul. I mean, God sent apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, teachers, um, you know, and the fivefold ministry to, to function in the church. And, and I took the test, and the test said that my primary gift was teaching. And so that's what I am. I'm a teacher. I'm an encourager. I'm an exhorter. So when the Christians come in, I teach them and I build them up. But I'm not really an evangelist. I don't really like confrontation. I don't really like rejection. And so therefore, I really don't go out and share my faith anymore. So Paul, uh, this is all God called me to do. It's all I feel comfortable doing. And you know, I'm gonna let my wife lead or, or I'm gonna let other people tell me what to do because that's, I'm just, that's not who I am. And Paul says, that's no excuse. We've all been given a command. One of the commands is to spread the gospel to make disciples of all nations. And just because your primary gift, you think, is not evangelism, it doesn't matter. At these times, you must move beyond where you feel comfortable. You must do the work of an evangelist. Doesn't mean you are an evangelist, that God gifted you in evangelism. No excuse. You must do what God has commanded us to do. Same message for everyone in here. No more excuses about, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just the mother of these kids and, you know, God just gave me this gift of nurturing and so I'm just gonna nurture. That's great. But that gives you an excuse not to do anything else. And again, it's not so much for the mothers I'm talking in here. It's the men, the men who are supposed to lead, especially in our culture who's getting darker. Well, if I say anything, they're gonna get mad at me. So what? They're going to get mad at you anyway. They're going to kill you anyway at some point in time. It is time to rise up and do the work of a leader. 
Do the work of someone who's committed to Christ. Do the work of someone who's sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least allow the Holy Spirit to do the work through you. It's, um, it's 1936. Turn your mind back, what it must have been like in Nazi Germany. 1936. The Nazis have come to power for a while now. They've, uh, they've consolidated their power. Uh, Hitler is now ruling everything. As a matter of fact, if you want a job, you have to join the Nazi party. If you want to buy a house, you have to join the Nazi party. And the Nazi party at this time is passing laws just like this. And they're passing laws and they're passing mandates and they're doing a lot of those things on the sly. So a lot of people who live in Nazi Germany at that time have no idea what's going on because they're consolidating power and they're moving that nation into something we know that led to the Holocaust. 1936, during the time when Hitler was consolidating power, there was a huge rally that took place at a ship uh, building factory, and you've seen the picture. It is massive. It is a huge coliseum, and everybody here is pledging their allegiance to Adolf Hitler. And the reason why is the fact that if you don't, you don't get a job. If you don't, you're going to get canceled, or worse. If you don't, then you're going to face persecution. So it's easier to go along with the crowd and just do the outward motion, even though I don't feel it on the inside, to everybody but him. You ever seen this picture? Everybody but him. Everybody's saluting, and this guy says, ain't going to happen. Not going to do it. The fact of the matter is, I have morals. We're going to find out that actually it was a personal thing with him, that he tried to go along, and it was absolute tragic results. I refuse. I will not follow the crowd. I'll not do what everybody says. You don't want to be my friend? Then cancel or defriend me on Facebook. Better than I'll just get off Facebook. I, you know, if I lose my job, it's God's, God's job to get me another profession. I refuse. His name was August Landmesser. August Landmesser. He happened to be born in 1910, uh, May 24th, 1910. So he's 26 years old when this is taking place. He's a young man, has his whole life ahead of him. What, uh, what uh, this man did is he, uh, in Germany, he realized that if I want a job, I'm going to have to do what everybody else does. I'm going to have to join the Nazi party. And so he did. He didn't understand the evil of the Nazi party at that time. He didn't understand the direction the Nazi party was going. He just kind of was caught up in the fervor of that. So I'm going to join the Nazi party. I'm going to, in our culture today, I'm going to pledge my allegiance to the state. I'm going to take the vaccine. I'm going to turn in my friends who don't. I'm going to do whatever everybody wants me to do in order for my life to kind of rock on unmolested. Just a normal guy, August Landmaster, that you and I would probably like. In 1934, he met this woman, and he really fell head over heels for this woman. Her name was Irma Eckler. Irma Eckler was a Jew. Although she was a Jew, she was baptized as a Protestant. She was a Christian in belief, but nevertheless, she was an ethnic Jew. August didn't care. He wanted to get engaged, so in 1934, they got engaged. Here's this young woman at that time of their engagement, bright-eyed, whole future in front of them, marry, see this man, it's going to be fantastic. But he was forbidden to marry her because of the Nuremberg Laws. 
Unbeknownst to him, after their engagement, the Nuremberg Laws were passed, and they basically said in order to maintain the purity of the Aryan race, that a Jewish male was forbidden to marry a Jewish woman. And so therefore, they went ahead and had a private ceremony with uh, their pastor. In the eyes of God, they were married, but in the eyes of the state, they weren't. So the first child was born. According to the state, it was an illegitimate child. According to them, it was a marriage sanctioned by God. The first child was born on October 29th, 1935, a year before that picture that I showed you. Her name was Ingrid, and this is what she looked like a few years later. Lovely child, full of hope, and mom and dad that love her, and no idea what Nazi Germany was like at that time, no idea what would befall her, but... Uh, they're just kind of rocking on here. They realized that things were getting kind of rough. This was, of course, after his refusing to salute Hitler in 1936. So in 1937, he decided the right thing to do in that particular situation, according to him. He gathered his family together. They decided to flee to Denmark. But at the border, they were apprehended by uh, the border police, and they were arrested. He was charged with the crime of dishonoring the race. You've dishonored the race because you're with a Jewish woman. You will lose your job. You will lose your pension. You will lose your house. You could actually go to jail because the government at that time has decided that what you were doing by marrying a woman that you love, who's a Christian just like you, baptized as a Protestant, but nevertheless is racially a Jew, that you've committed this horrific crime that was the law at that time. And so therefore, if you will leave your wife, if you will abandon your children, that everything will go well with you. Well, this honorable man said, no, no, I'm not going to do that because that's my wife and God's law is higher than man's law. And if I give in to this, what else am I going to give in to? What he didn't know was in 1937, a secret edict was issued by the German government. And the edict was so secret, it even stated at the bottom of the edict that this is not for public consumption. Maybe it was buried in a $3.5 trillion bill that's getting ready to be passed by Congress. We don't know. Here's how the beginning of the edict began. A secret directive from the head of the security police was dated on the 12th of June, 1937, concerning the protective custody of this German name, which means race defilement. If we find somebody who is defiling the Aryan race, maybe a Christian, who would decide that they actually wanted a place in business with other non-Christians, maybe a heterosexual who wants a job uh, with, with a place as primary homosexual, maybe someone who actually has the audacity to want to go into a Walmart and buy groceries without having your vaccine passport. Who knows? The secret directive from the protective custody of or race defilement says this. In the case of this race defilement between a German male and a Jewish female, she is to be taken into protective custody immediately. That sounds protective custody like they're doing her a favor. Protective custody immediately after legal proceedings have been completed, and this directive is not for public release. We're just letting you know. So he was arrested on July 28, 1937, a few days before his second daughter, Irene, was born. This is a picture of his second daughter. And he, of course, was tried, but he was acquitted 
Because at that time, the courts could not decide since she was a racial Jew, yet she was baptized as a Protestant, and which made her a Christian. Really, there was some confusion in there. So based on some sort of loophole or problem that uh, he was acquitted for that and yet went back to his family and was arrested again. This is the time between his release and his arrest where he is spending some time with his wife and his two children. He was sentenced to 30 months in jail because he had the audacity to stay married to a woman that he loved, who the government had said was not fitted for him because they wanted to keep the Aryan race pure. And he never saw his family again. Never. Here is his wife with the two children with the husband in jail. She was arrested by the Gestapo, with her husband now gone, and then sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. This is the camp in which Corrie Boone and her sister died. This is not a protective custody re-education center. It is a camp for Jews and gypsies and misfits to be exterminated. Both her children were sent to orphanages. Remember, a mother holding on to her two kids because the government has decided what is best for them. And it not only affects the parents, but the kids and the grandkids and generations to come. In 1942, from book, she was transferred to the Brynberg Euthanasia Center, which she died along with thousands of others in a gas chamber. He was drafted into the penal battalion, which is fighting in Croatia. What they did with people like him who were in jail, they got them out of the jail because by 1944, the, Jew, the uh, Germans were beginning to lose the war. So they would take all the prisoners, they would give them guns and no training, they would send them on the front lines and say part of your crime, penalty for your crime is to fight for the further land. And so they sent them on the front lines and he was killed in action on October 17, 1944. His daughter searched for him until 1990. There was always a cost for doing what is right. Always a cost for doing what is right. And if we men aren't willing to pay that price, what are our children going to say about us? What example are we leading to them? Do we love our job? Do we love our peace? Do we love our home? Do we love our families more than we love doing what is right? Or do we stand? I mean, this man's life could have been so much better had he simply not gone back to his family, followed the laws of the day, which during the Nuremberg trials were turned out to be war crimes. But at that particular time in culture, the government said it was okay. What are we to do? We're to have this mindset. But what things were gained to me? What things that are profit to me? What things I love? What things make me who I am? I have counted loss for Christ. This world is just passing on. I'm getting older day by day. Pretty soon I will leave everything behind. And the only thing I will not leave behind is my witness and testimony of how I lived my faith in the face of dark times. Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord of having that higher Christian life, 
of knowing him greater than I've ever known him before, for whom I have suffered, past tense, the loss of everything, and count them as rubbish or dung, the King James says, that I may gain Christ. Everything that I'm holding on to, my family will turn against me. So, Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. Each of you have a gift or multiple gifts or a calling individually. And all of us have a calling corporately. We're to, we're to make disciples of all nations. We're to be his witnesses wherever we go. Well, that doesn't mean work does. It doesn't mean my kid's baseball team does. It doesn't mean when my family does it, because if I do that, we get in arguments and fights all the time. So I'm just going to, what, not follow that? Because I, I want them to like me more than I want Christ to be proud of me. I, I'm just not equipped to share that with them. I'm just an ordinary man. Just like everybody God used was ordinary people inhabited by an extraordinary God who when we yield ourselves to him, he does his extraordinary things through us. So we can literally say, when I am weak, he is strong. We've got to rise to the occasion for what the church needs right now. The church needs truth. I mean, the church is supposed to be the purifying, sanctifying, illuminating element in our society. And the church in the United States is anything other than that. This church is anything other than that. We're really big inside the building, but how well do we function out there? How much persecution are you willing to take upon yourself for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? What would it take for you to shut your mouth and do nothing? Because whatever it would take, that's exactly what Satan's going to lay on your plate. Can't make any excuses anymore, such as, well, you know what? That's not really my gift. That's not my calling. I feel uncomfortable with that. And God would never want me to feel uncomfortable. Don't you feel uncomfortable now? Let me give you a, a small example. I was, I was on this website called Rebel News. And this guy has this show, I've never seen him before, and it's about 30 minutes long, and I'll send you the link. And he was talking about how just being quiet doesn't cut it anymore. And he simply said this, he goes, look, you know masks don't work. Science tells you masks doesn't work. If you, if you're in an, I mean, if you look in the Wuhan lab, when they're in an infectious environment, they have these big breathing masks, not some little plastic or, or cloth thing around your face. We all know that masks don't work, and yet we wear them out there because it's easier to comply. So our children have to wear them. They put masks on five years old in kindergarten and make them wear them all the time. There's science that says that harms a child. Child's unable to, to show expression. And I mean, it's, I saw this when school started. I saw this thing in a Gastonia paper. It was hilarious. It was a mother dropping her kids off at school, and she had a mask on, and all her kids had masks on, and the teacher had come with a mask on, and she was welcoming the kids to the first day of school, and she said, I love to see the joyous expressions on the face of their children when they come to school. And I'm looking at the picture going, you can't see nothing but eyes. It's like we're all Muslims. That's it. 
I mean, that crazy? We know they don't work, and yet we comply anyway. This is not an anti-mask message, but the longer, the, the, the more we comply and just let them inch away our rights that people died to secure for us. Tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people over the life of this nation died for us to have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When we let those go without standing, our children are the ones that will suffer. My grandchildren will suffer unless I take a stand. Well, I, I just, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I'm not an evangelist. Neither was Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. Because right now, that's what's being called on. To do that kind of work. What you think you lack, and we all lack, is found in him. Remember this verse, and I'll close with this. Life-changing verse. For in him, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the totality of God bodily in Christ. And you and I are complete, finished, perfected, not in ourselves, but in him. And how powerful is he? He's the head over all principality and all power. I can't, but Christ can. So surrender your life to him. Quit holding on to our possessions and our ease of life so tight like we think God owes us our best life now. And have him rise you to the occasion of whatever tool he needs right now to confront the darkness that is trying to destroy the fabric of our culture, which our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren live in. True? Don't we want to pass on to them a better world that was passed on to us? And we have all the power. And yet the enemy knows we'll refuse to use it because, well, I just don't feel comfortable with that. As if our comfort is the primary motivating factor determines what God does. Amen? Let me pray.